How are you all doing today? Get to do. I hope you don't mind if I sit down. Standing for long periods of time can be problematic for my back. My name is Ben Arsenault. My wife, Fawn, and I are from Calgary, Alberta, Canada. And we're down here in Maricopa, basically just trying to escape the 11 and a half months of winter we get up there <laughs> that we experience in Canada. Actually, we're trying to make a move down here, and so uh, we're, hopefully, we're hoping that the Lord will provide a way for us to do that soon. So over the past few months, we've been going through the book of Luke, and today we find ourselves in Luke chapter 3, and we're introduced to the ministry and person of John the Baptist. So earlier in Luke, we discovered that John would be the forerunner to the Messiah, and that he will turn back many of the sons of Israel to the Lord their God. And he was, he was to smooth out the way and get the people of Israel ready to hear the Messiah, Jesus Christ, through whom we're told all flesh shall see the salvation of God. As John was growing up, it says he grew to become strong in the spirit. And he lived in the deserts until the day of his public appearance. So John began his ministry when he was about 30 years old, and from what we can uh, find, it appears that his ministry only lasted about a year and a half. At that time, he, was, he ended up being beheaded by Herod at the whims of Herod's evil wife, if you remember the story. But John spoke with great power, and he electrified the entire nation of Israel with his ministry of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And great multitudes were coming out to see him, to listen to him and confess their sins and be baptized by him. So the passage we're going to talk about today uh, begins in Luke chapter 3, verse 7. Let's read that together. He therefore began saying to the multitudes who were going out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bring forth fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father, for I say to you that God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. And also the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the multitudes were questioning him, saying, Then what shall we do? And he would answer and say to them, Let the man who has two tunics share with him who has none. And let him who has food do likewise. And some tax gatherers also came to be baptized. And they said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than what you have been ordered to. And some of the soldiers were questioning him, saying, And what about us? What shall we do? And he said to them, Do not take money from anyone by force or accuse anyone falsely, and be content with your wages. Let's pray together. Father, we'd just like to thank you that we can be here today and that we can look into your word and we ask that you would give us the wisdom that we need to understand your word and to act on it. I pray that your kingdom would come here among us and that you would grow us to maturity in Jesus Christ and help us to be fully devoted followers of Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So I find it interesting, John's choice of words in addressing the people who come to see him. So they're coming out to the desert to hear his message, to hear about forgiveness, to hear about the coming Messiah, to confess their sins, 
and he's calling them names. You brood of vipers. Or basically, you pack of snakes. Or you offspring of snakes. He calls them names. You know, that's not exactly the seeker-sensitive type of language we're told you're supposed to use when trying to get people to listen to your message. Most preachers and pastors do not speak this way to their congregations. In our culture today, you're supposed to kind of butter the people up and make them feel good, and hopefully they'll listen to you as long as you're not too harsh with them. But John begins his message message by being harsh with them. You offspring of snakes, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Basically, what are you even doing here? So I was thinking, why would John do this, and what right does he have to talk to the people in this way? Does he even have a right? In finding the answer to that question, I think it's helpful for us to take a look at who the nation of Israel was and what type of people they were. So I want to give you a bit of a historical background. So the nation of Israel begins with a man named Abraham, whom God appears to, and because of his faith in God, God makes a covenant with him, promising to bless him and multiply him, and promises to give him the land of Canaan as an everlasting possession. So Abraham's considered the father of Israel, and throughout history, the Israelites took a lot of pride in being children of Abraham. It's kind of like America's respect for George Washington as a founding father. So many years later, Abraham's descendants end up in the land of Egypt, where they're treated harshly as slaves of the Egyptians. And if you remember the story of how God used Moses to perform these miraculous signs and wonders and lead the nation of Israel out of Egypt into the desert towards the land of Canaan. And you remember how they grumbled their way through the desert until they reached the land of Canaan. But when they get there, they became very afraid of the people who were there. And they refused to go in and take the land that the Lord commanded them to do. They rebelled against the Lord who had miraculously brought them this far and had fed and clothed them through the desert and delivered them from the hands of the Egyptians. But they said, why is the Lord bringing us here to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become plunder. Would it not be better to return to Egypt? They wanted to appoint a leader who would lead them back to Egypt where they were once slaves. The result of their rebellion was that none of that generation would ever enter the land that God had promised them, and they ended up having to wander the desert for 40 years. So finally, after 40 years, God leads them into the land and defeats their enemies in many miraculous ways, and Israel subdues the people of Canaan and takes possession of the land. Even though they had grumbled and complained against God, God was faithful to them, and just as he promised, the land was given to each tribe and apportioned to them accordingly. God fulfilled every single promise that he had made to them up to that point. What an amazing story this is. I mean, who had ever heard of anything like this in all of history prior? You would think that the people of Israel would have it burned in their memories what God had brought them through and that they would fear him and be careful to do all that he had commanded them. But we're told the very next generation of Israel walks away from God and does evil in his sight. They embrace the worship of 
these Canaanite gods, which included the making and engraving of idols and images to bow down to and worship. They worshiped the gods Baal, Asherah, and Molech. They built high places of worship to these gods and would perform these ritualistic ceremonies where they would cut themselves and engage in temple prostitution and even burn their own children and sacrifice their own children in order to serve these gods. As a result, God would hand them over to their enemies for a time, and they would suffer incredible consequences. But God, as they would cry out to to him, he would graciously send judges to deliver them, and they would return to God for a short period of time, but that judge would die, and they would again forget about God and turn and worship these false gods and do evil in the sight of the Lord. And this is basically the pattern of history for Israel. They would walk away from his laws that he gave them in order to live at peace with God and live and prosper in the land that he promised them. God would be patient with them and he would send a judge or a good king or a prophet to try and turn the hearts of the people back towards him to follow his ways. And at times they would listen and repent. But most of the time they disregarded the words of these men of God and they would continue on in their rebellious ways. So finally, after it seems like a thousand chances, God delivers them over into the hands of their enemies, and they're carried off into slavery into other nations. So when I think about the history of Israel and what's written in the prophets, I imagine God is saying to Israel, I brought you up from your youth and multiplied you and blessed you. When you were nothing but slaves, I delivered you. I heard your cries when you were helpless, and I came and rescued you from death and oppression, and clothed you and gave you food to eat, and gave you my laws so that you could live in peace with one another and be blessed and prosper in the land that I was giving you. I gave you land, a land of blessing and homes that you didn't have to build, and I delivered you from all of your enemies and established you in every way and gave you everything that you could ever need, but you still would not love me or turn your hearts towards me so that I could heal you and forgive you and make you whole. But instead, they mocked and even killed some of the messengers God sent to them. So this is the people that John is speaking to, you brood of vipers. And if you think that John is being unfair to this generation of Israel, keep in mind that although John probably didn't know it at the time, this is the very generation that would put Jesus Christ, the Son of God, to death on the cross. And John warns them, do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. Because it seems like the people who came out to see John were maybe just paying lip service to repentance and coming to be baptized by him for appearance sake with no heart or attitude change. And they didn't really need to repent because after all, they were children of Abraham. They were God's people. He would save them no matter what, right? They're all good. They can live however they want. But just like the prophets of old, John is saying, repent and bear fruit because the axe is laid at the tree and it's ready to be cut down if you don't. Being children of Abraham isn't as important as you think because God can wipe all of you out and still produce children to Abraham from these stones if he has to. So do you see any similarities between Israel then and America now? You know, America was founded on Christian principles, 
But I think over the years, America has exhibited some of the same rebellious attitudes that Israel did thousands of years ago. Looking at America today, I think you can't deny that the rate of moral decay is increasing in, in this nation. George Barna and his research group did a survey 12 years ago now where they found that 60% of Americans believe it's acceptable to live together prior to marriage. 59% approve of sexual fantasizing. 45% of Americans say abortion is acceptable. 42% approve of sexual intimacy outside of marriage. 38% of Americans say pornography is acceptable. 30% approve of homosexuality. And other studies have shown that 4 out of 10 children are born out of wedlock. AIDS is doubling every five years. And one-third of pregnancies, of all pregnancies, end in abortion. And finally, 16,000 deaths every year are due to drinking and driving. I've heard it said before that in the history of humankind, there has never been a society that has had the type of moral decline that America has had in so short a period of time in the last 50 years or so. I'm not sure if that's true, but you've got to admit that this is very alarming when you consider what happened to the nations in the Bible that practiced the type of evil we see in America today. And unfortunately, the church is very quickly beginning to accept some of the worldly practices we see in America today. Many churches have turned and have begun to accept the ways of the world who the Bible says lives in enmity with God. The way of the world is to be led by the lust of the flesh and by evil desires. And I think that far too often, the church is coming to accept the ways of the world, or if not accepting, maybe allowing these types of behaviors to go on amongst the members, becoming friendly to the world. But as James says in chapter 4, verse 4, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So I've rubbed shoulders with a lot of non-believers, and there's one thing in common that I hear when the topic of religion comes up. I hear it all the time. People say, well, I'm not really a religious person, but I'm a good person. Do you hear that all the time? We say that about ourselves. I'm a good person. And the issue is we start to compare ourselves to others, saying, I'm better than that guy, or... At least I don't do what she does. Or I would never do something like that. And we say to ourselves, I'm a good person. And somehow we tend to place our trust in our own goodness, just like Israel would put their trust in simply being children of Abraham. And the danger becomes when we use it as an excuse to keep living the way we want to and rationalizing our sinful behavior. Just like Israel did in saying, we have Abraham for our father, we're all good, God will bless us, God will save us, he has to, we're Abraham's children. We tend to have the same attitude. We're good people, I'm a good person, God will take me to heaven and save me. Yeah, no one's perfect, but I'm a good person. We get these ideas in our head that make us feel better about ourselves, 
and we rationalize our sinful behavior, saying, you know, it's really not that bad what I'm doing. It's not hurting anyone. Or maybe we say like the serpent said to Eve way back in the garden, did God really say that's wrong? Or maybe then it was wrong, but come on, it's 2015 now. Get with the times. People are different now. Times have changed. You can't expect everyone to be perfect all the time. Don't be a hater. Don't judge me. That's what we say to ourselves. Or we tell ourselves, well, if it really is a sin, you know, I can, I can always repent later and come back to God and he'll forgive me and I'll be all good again. I'll do it later. Someday I'll repent. Someday I'll get a hold of this issue. Well, it's true that God will always forgive you if you truly repent and turn to him. He's always there to accept you back into right relationship with himself to heal you, to cleanse you, to make you whole again. But the danger is not that you can't be forgiven by God or that you can't come back to God. The danger is that you will not want to. The danger is not that you can't be forgiven by God or that you can't come back to God. The danger is that you will not want to. You know, I think for most of us as followers of Jesus Christ, it's not like we're fervent followers one day and totally dedicated to being his disciples, and then the next we're worshiping false gods or committing adultery or becoming addicted to pornography or gambling our savings away or becoming drunkards and drug addicts the next day, or you're following Jesus one day and the next you're a bitter, angry, grumbling complainer just like the nation of Israel. It usually doesn't happen overnight like that. But it happens when we make one false, one small false decision after another. One little white lie that leads to a bigger one. Or we land on a website that we know we shouldn't be on. Or we entertain one false thought that we know is wrong. Or we even hang around people that we know are leading us away from God. And one baby step after another leads us into sin until we're so far down the road away from God that we no longer desire to turn back and we're no longer in the faith. But God takes sin seriously. He cut the nation of Israel off and led them away into slavery and death and let them be overcome by their enemies and face the consequences of their sin because after all he tried to do to turn them back to him, they would not. So they were cut off. The axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire, John tells us. So what should we do? John's message to the people was to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Bear the type of fruit that someone who has truly made a change of heart would produce. I think it's important to note here that John is not saying, if you bear fruit, you are right with God. But rather, if you are really right with God, you will bear fruit. If the Holy Spirit dwells inside of you, as is the case when you place your trust in Jesus Christ for salvation, then you will produce fruit. So there's three different types of people who ask John what they should do. To the multitudes, he says, share what you have with others. Share your clothes, share your food, share your house, share your car. If you have something your neighbor needs, share it with him. Be generous. 
to the tax collectors, he says, collect no more than what you have been ordered to. In other words, be honest. Don't take what's not yours. To the soldiers, he kind of says the same thing. Don't steal or extort money from others, but be content with your own wages. Be generous, be honest, be content. This is the type of fruit we are to produce. Don't go on living how you used to. Instead, focus on others. But the first step is repentance, because you can't bear this type of fruit without having a true change of heart. And John is urging the people to have that true change of heart, because unless they repent, they're about to be cut off. And as history unfolded, we see that that generation as a whole didn't listen to John's words, but instead crucified their own Messiah and were eventually expelled from the land in A.D. 68 to 70 when the Romans came and scattered them across the globe. So what about us? Are we going to be cut off if we don't repent? So I'm one who believes that once you're saved, you can't be unsaved. Once you repent and believe in Jesus Christ and put your trust in him, the Holy Spirit comes to dwell inside of you, and you are sealed, and your name is written in the book of life, and you belong to God forever, no matter what you do from that point on. But there are those who believe that it's possible for you to be unsaved if you, if you walk in sin or turn away from God. Now, both points have valid, both positions have valid points from the Bible, and it's not my intention to get in, into that debate today. But I do want to point out some of the principles that we see from the Bible that I think are, in, are re- important regarding what it means that the axe is laid at the root of the fruitless tree, which is ready to be cut down, and how it applies to us as Christians today. So no matter what you believe about being saved or unsaved, if you can be unsaved, we are commanded to continually test ourselves to see if we are in the faith. Take a look at 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5. Paul commands the believers, Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or, or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you unless you indeed fail the test? And we are commanded by other authors of the New Testament to prove ourselves as walking in the light of children of God and followers of Jesus Christ. Let's turn to Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12. Verse 12, 3, 12 to 4, 1. The writer of Hebrews gives us a warning, saying, Take care, brethren, lest there should be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart in falling away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, lest any one of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. While it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. For who provoked him when they had heard? Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt, led by Moses? And with whom was he angry for forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they should not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? 
And so we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, let us fear, lest while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you should seem to have come short of it. And he continues in chapter 10, verse 26. Hebrews 10, 26. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. He takes sin seriously. You see, in light of these words, it's so important to test ourselves to see if we're truly walking in the faith. So how can we do that? We need to make repentance a daily practice. If we are believers and we have the Holy Spirit inside of us to guide us and direct us and to reveal sin in our lives, we need to ask God daily, Lord, is there sin in my life that you want me to deal with? And once it's revealed, confess it and repent immediately. And furthermore, Peter shed some light on how we can test ourselves rather well in 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5 to 11. Let's read that one. Now, for this very reason, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless or unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you, for as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble." For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be abundantly supplied to you. So it's not that you're expected to become perfect or to be perfect, but if you practice these things that Peter lists, faith, virtue, self-control, brotherly kindness, and love, this will ensure that you never fall into the same category as Israel when they were cut down, losing the favor of God. Now, the amazing thing about God is that no matter how far you've fallen away or what you've done against him, you only need to repent. And at that instance, you can know that he is there with open arms, ready to bring you back into a right relationship with him. Because of Jesus Christ's sacrifice, carrying the weight of our sin on his shoulders and shedding his blood for us, we can be washed clean and renewed and restored in our relationship with God. I'll close with this. 
in Luke chapter 15, Jesus tells the story of a certain man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. And he divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. Now when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be in need. And he went and attached himself to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he was longing to fill his stomach with the pods of swine, with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving anything to him. But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I'm dying here with hunger? I will get up and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. And he got up and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and be merry. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found, and they began to be married. Notice how the father is anticipating the return of his son. He doesn't reluctantly accept him back or berate him for his foolishness or make him feel like a loser. He rejoices over him. He cleans him up and puts the best robe on him and celebrates over him. He was waiting for the day that his son would return home. And when he finally did, he throws a party and rejoices because his son was dead but has now begun to live. If you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus Christ and you've never made a commitment to follow him and you'd like to repent from your sins today and give your life to him, I'd like to lead you in a prayer where you can do that and know with certainty that you're forgiven and that you're welcomed into his family and into his kingdom and that you can have peace with God and will spend eternity in heaven with him. If you'd like to do that today, would you pray with me? Repeat after me. Lord God, I acknowledge that I'm a sinner and I confess my sins before you. And I ask you, Lord Jesus, to forgive me of my sins. I acknowledge you as Lord of my life and I ask you to save me from my sin. Thank you for your sacrifice for me and for shedding your blood on the cross for me to pay for my sins and to bring me into your kingdom. Lord Jesus, I believe that you are God, and I ask you to live your life through me and help me bear fruit for your kingdom. Amen. If you prayed that prayer with me today, Please tell somebody about it. 
There's a communication card in your bulletin. Please let us know of your decision. We, we want to rejoice with you and welcome you into the family of God. Now, if you're here today as a follower of Jesus Christ and you've already made a commitment to follow him, but you find yourself struggling with sin and want to repent of that sin and you want to bring it before God today, let's take some time to do that. Or if you're not sure if there's sin in your life, I want to urge you to ask the Holy Spirit to reveal any false way in your life or if there's an area of your life that you've become hardened by the deceitfulness of sin so that you can bring it before God today and be forgiven and healed. I, I want to urge you all today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, but instead repent and enter into his rest. So let's take some time in quiet reflection and bring those issues before God today. Let's take a few moments to do that.